we arrived the next day at this event and I'll never forget it because it was myself when I was 20, Ed was 20. We were these kind of like scrawny young post-teenagers and around us were these 40-year-old, 50-year-old journalists. There were these TV crews that had these big-ass cameras and then there's us with that little tiny flip-out holiday <laughs> camera. So instantly, I was nervous and I was thinking, God, they're not going to take me seriously. I'm going to look like an idiot. But we put those videos out and within the first month, we had 100,000 views. Welcome to Yaro's podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Today's episode is brought to you by InboxDone.com, who provide a human being to take over your email inboxes. That's right, someone else can handle your email for you. This company was started after I went to a networking dinner with some other entrepreneurs and I explained to them that I only checked my email once per month. They looked at me quite shocked, so I had to explain that I actually have someone else handling about 95% of my messages. That's why I only need to go into my inbox once a month. That is the origin story of the InboxDone.com company. We've since gone on to launch this business to help other entrepreneurs and successful people like you who spend way too much time on their email when they should be doing other productive tasks for their business or fun things in their life. If this resonates with you, if you're getting too much email, you're spending too much time in your inbox and you know having someone dedicated to handling your email, your customer service and doing proactive things like chasing up clients over email, then Inbox Done is for you. Check it out at www.inboxdone.com. Hi, this is Yaro and welcome to a podcast. Today I have a guest who I connected with so many years ago, I can't even remember what we talked about. And then we didn't talk for a long time and we recently reconnected because he's, uh, I guess, gone through the final step in the entrepreneur's journey and, and had his company acquired. So we're going to find out about that. There's also an interesting parallel with my guest today and a previous guest, Alborz Fala, who you might have heard a recent podcast and also a podcast from 10 years ago. These guys are both in the online car space, car editorial content, uh, but they do it in different ways. So it'd be interesting to hear from my guest today and what he's done over the last decade plus with his car business. So I'd like to welcome Adnan Ibrahim to the show. Hello, Adnan. Hello, Yaro. And... Uh... Yeah, you know, when you were doing that introduction, it was bizarre because I remember the first time, well, this is the first time we've ever spoken, but the first time we spoke digitally, I guess, was way back. I think it was 2008 when I first got started in blogging. So yeah, it's, it's nice to finally meet you properly as opposed to just via MSN Messenger. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I do remember because Albor's actually talked about you. I mean, not just now, but a long time ago. He said, hey, there's this guy doing the same thing I'm doing in the UK kind of story, <laughs> right? And he, he contacted <laughs> me and said hello. And just for some background, Albor's started Car Advice, a very successful car blog, which got acquired by Channel 9, huge million dollar story, et cetera, et cetera. Great interview I did with him just recently telling his his story. Now, Adnan, I know you heard the first podcast we did, Alborz and I, way back in, I think it was 08, it might have been 08, actually, because that's when it was starting to get some real traction. But to be fair to you, I knew you, I think, before that, because I remember we spoke uh, back in the blogtrepreneur days, you were the founder of that yeah. blog. And I also 
vaguely remember the, the Young Entrepreneur site. Were they involved in some way with Blogtrepreneur as well? So they ended up actually acquiring Blogtrepreneur. And yeah, you're, you're bang on. So I, in 2006, am I getting that right? Yeah, 2006. So when I was 16, um, I started up Blogtrepreneur. And yours was one of the best blogs in my daily readings. And you know, back when RSS was, was a technology <laughs> that people used, you were Entrepreneur's Dash Journey was the number one place that I'd go to kind of just hear what, the internet marketing space and what was going on. And, you know, you yourself have such an inspiring story. So honestly, you know, you have mentioned Obors and we've never met, but we've had a, he's actually met my head of sales, weirdly, Samantha. And he, I've not met him myself, but I read that uh, podcast script that you did with Obors back in 2008. And honestly, it really inspired me to get into automotive. So whether it was a great thing and Albor's helped to inspire a new generation or helped to inspire a UK competitor, who knows? <laughs> but all it, it was extremely inspirational. And, and reading his interview made me sit there and think, gosh, like I'm a huge enthusiast myself and maybe I could actually turn this into something. Well, let's hope one day, maybe 10 years from now, someone says the same thing about your interview here at Dan. But, um, oh, 100%. I'd love that. <laughs> let's put this in perspective. So you started Car Throttle. What are the numbers? I know you guys have a huge social following, but give us an overview of what the, the business is today. Yeah, sure. So we are a, a social media brand. We have 15 million followers across those key social platforms. We believe that automotive content uh, should be published where users spend most of their time, which is today on mobile phones and on those social platforms. And so we went to where they where they uh, spend most of their time. In 2018, we did two and a half billion video views. So we're huge creators of video content. And we have the UK's leading automotive channel on YouTube, which has over two and a half million subscribers. And we pretty regularly get a million views per episode on the YouTube channel. So that's kind of the numbers side. And from a brand side, we're kind of huge believers in branded content. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the change in advertising over the last 10 years. But we work with clients like Mercedes-Benz, Red Bull, high-end sports car manufacturers like McLaren to help them tell their stories on social media and to drive results for them via social media. How big is the team at the moment? We are 21 within within uh, Car Throttle and WTF1, which is our motorsports brand, uh, which was an acquisition that we made uh, at the end of 2016. But we've just been acquired by Dennis Publishing, who are a kind of big publishing brand with uh, fingers in automotive, finance, current affairs, and they have something like 500 employees worldwide. So we're now part of a much bigger family, much bigger machine. Okay, well, I'd love to talk about you know the business from zero to acquire, but uh, first I got to ask uh, Dan. You obviously were an entrepreneur at an early age, at sixteen, starting a a blog entrepreneur blog. So that clearly is something about entrepreneurship. You know, before that, growing up, what stimulated this this entrepreneurial drive? Yeah, it's a good question because it, it's really that like nature versus nurture question. My parents, I'd say, are fairly enterprising, even though my dad is a dentist, and you wouldn't consider that to be too enterprising. He had his own practice. And, you know, I remember having to help him with bookkeeping. So he would give me a check stub and I'd have to sit there on my first computer manually entering transactions. And I would be around the family business in that sense. And my mum, she has her own, own jewelry business where she supplies shops, boutiques. So both of them, I think, have that kind of 
independent way of thinking. And that was something that I was brought up with, kind of how to challenge the status quo and how to do something different. And yeah, I mean, even before Blogtrepreneur, I can't remember if, you, if you're aware of this, but I was messing around on the internet for a while, you know, buying and selling stuff on eBay, trying to get into a lot of consumer electronics. I created all manner of websites, not just blogs, but forums and applications and Gosh, yeah. I was a kind of a chronic tinkerer on the internet. It was my playground. Sounds a lot like my own uh, early, early years. But you were doing that like, I mean, for me, it was when I was 18, 19. It sounds like you were doing this when you're what, 12, 13, 14? Is that right? Yeah, it was, it was 14, 15 that I first got started online. And then 15, 16 when, uh, 15 when I was making probably a decent amount of money from eBay selling I don't know if you remember those wristbands. They were they were really in fashion back then. I would go down to the local shop that was selling them. And I think initially I bought a couple, sold them to friends at school, and then I bought a couple, realized that eBay, there was a much higher margin and would flip them on eBay. And then it wasn't long before I was try- I was telling my mum to drive to every single store in the area to <laughs> buy out all of the stock of these wristbands so that I could then go and flog them on eBay. So that was kind of 15 and then 16 was the the kind of website era, I'd say. Okay, now what was the plan with, with Blogtrepreneur, since it sounds like that's your first big project? Yeah, you know what was interesting about Blogtrepreneur? And I don't know if you found this as well later on, but some of those people that I got in touch with that helped, who were, I guess, the mentors in the space, there were a couple of guys that I kind of tracked and followed and they've gone on to do some amazing things like yourself. And it actually, a lot of what Blogtrepreneur was about was just learning. It was how to build a website, how to change your theme to suit whatever you wanted to do. And again, I'm sure this is exactly the same for you, but I never really had a background in coding or production or engineering. Instead, I just hacked around with a .blogspot.com domain name. And that was how I learned how to build websites. I mean, that was just me tinkering HTML and CSS and breaking stuff and figuring out what worked, what didn't work before really then just like stumbling on a formula for Blogtrepreneur, which was posting my daily thoughts. And I have no idea why anyone cared about some (laughs) random 16-year-old's thoughts. But for some reason, I had a couple of thousand RSS subscribers. I think, you know what, I can't remember the traffic. It was in the region of the tens of thousands of months, I think, nothing too significant. And it was making some money. We were doing the old, you know, banner ads, text link ads, sponsored posts. And this was way before, as you know, social media and video. I think our equivalent of social media was getting homepage of Dig, right? Mm, yeah, wow. Well, yeah, and that's going back. <laughs> that was that was kind of, or even delicious. Yeah, that was our yeah, like, yeah. it was the holy grail of, oh my god, we're going to get you know five thousand unique users in twenty four hours. Or slash dot. And, I remember slash dot as oh, well. Slash, yeah, slash dot. What was it? Oh, stumble upon. Yes. If you could get on stumble upon, you could get like a torrent of traffic. So it was it was almost learning how to distribute and how to market content. Mm. And I think that was the real key learning of Blogtrepreneur, which was taking something from nothing and getting people to read what I had written and, and then hacking content and playing around with stuff to drive the best results. And that, that was kind of why I describe it as a playground because there were no rules back then. And actually... It was kind of the wild west of the internet. Mm. I think you've said this yourself from what I've read recently. You know, had we really realized how much of a wild west it was in terms of the domain names that we could have bought? I mean, a lot of shoulda, woulda, couldas, but oh God, yes. you know, compared, 
compared to now, I mean, you know, the web has become a little bit more shut off. There, there are less opportunities really for the easy, low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can't, you can't argue against that just simply because it was a, a nascent technology. So, and you're right, I, I was actually reading an audiobook or listening to an audiobook recently, uh, the founder of Match.com, who also happened to pick up uh, Sex.com and a bunch of other domain names, and he turned into a multi-multi-millionaire. It's a long, long story short. But, and he was buying those domain names, you know, a bit earlier than, than my start, probably like 94 95, 96. But like you said, we could have bought so many domains still in, in 97, 98, 99 and, and done really well. I'm curious though, with, with blog entrepreneurs, it's a funny overlap here. Um, I, with my proofreading company, contacted the young entrepreneur guys. I remember for me, one of the most prominent sites when I was starting was this youngentrepreneur.com site. And obviously, you know, I saw myself as a young entrepreneur and I really identified with that idea of being a young person trying to make a business work. So their site was very interesting to me. I think I wrote a guest post once. I think that's why I connected with them. But you ended up selling your entire blog to them. Can you take us forward? Because I want to get into the car throttle story here, but you did a lot before you hit car throttle. So what happened with the whole entrepreneur you know business yeah so i think it got to a stage this was before my 18th birthday where i wasn't able to spend as much time on it i think i was too i think i was doing applications for university so i would get home from school publish some articles tweak the design a little bit try and sell some ads and then that was it so it was a couple of hours a day and that was kind of my time on msn messenger coincidentally none of my friends or family actually knew that about Blogtrepreneur. I had kept it a secret because... Not even your mum and dad? The only time my mum and dad found out was when I had to get them to sign the purchase agreement for the asset. So the only time they found out that I even had this internet hustle was when they had to basically, because I was under 18, they had to sign this legal doc. And I think I remember them looking at this and just being really confused. They're like, <laughs> you're selling something, but we didn't even know you had anything. So what the hell is going on? And it's not real. It's virtual. And it's a website. They were just completely bamboozled by this concept. But yeah, I mean, long story short, Adam Torren, who is the owner of Young Entrepreneur Inc., had a couple of websites. Um, and he, I think he was starting to grow the network. Uh, and he made me an offer, wasn't anything substantial. It was kind of a low five-figure offer. But, you know, for a 17-year-old, that's a hell of a lot of money. And yeah, he just said, cool, we see the value in this. And I said, yeah, I think I'm kind of at the end of my journey with the site because I couldn't dedicate time to it. And I was just about to head to university. And yeah, they acquired it. And, you know, I think for the next couple of years, they carried on running it, changed some stuff. I don't know today, actually. I know that it still exists, but I don't know the level of activity but yeah, that was the story. Mm. I think that was probably around the era or or just the, the dawn of the era of the blog network. Uh, I think even like Weblogs Inc., you know, Jason Kalkanis' mm. network, which eventually sold to AOL, it was sort of like the the shining star for that model. And I remember even Darren Rouse, pro blogger, had his network. So it was kind of a thing, like if you want to turn blogging into a serious business, acquire some other blogs, put it under an umbrella brand of a network, and then you're a real company, so to speak. So he was probably thinking something along those lines. It's amazing too, your story, like you sold a low five-figure business. I sold my Magic the Gathering site, a low five-figure sale as well. But you did everything roughly about five years 
prior to me in terms of your age, <laughs> but probably very similar timing. Like I must have done my things like one or two years before you did. But I think, how old are you now? You're like late 20s? I'm 29, so I'm just about to hit that scary 30. Yeah, okay. So I just hit the scary 40, <laughs> so way scarier. So I, I, I still can't figure out how, I guess, because obviously me being you know 10 years older than you, there, that's a you would have been... I guess I started blogging in 2004 or five, so yeah, that makes sense because you would have been 15 when you would have possibly came across my blog. So yeah, it's sort of it is interesting how these polarities uh, happen, similarities. But and then of course you got into the automotive space like Alvarez. Let's talk a little bit about your life plans because I know you know as a 17 year old you're, you're probably watching your friends plan to enter university after graduating high school and I'm, I'm guessing you're growing up in the UK judging by your your accent where you live now and then <laughs> yeah. did your, your parents were they saying go get a, a you know a dentist degree so you could be like your dad or what was the career path they wanted and what were you thinking was for your future after uh, high school yeah you know it's funny because I actually myself put pressure on myself to get that degree initially and I actually had a dream career which was I wanted to be in banking and finance I wanted to work on a sales and trading floor and I wanted to be the that Wall Street guy I think for some reason that really appealed to me it was the it was kind of the sexy job back then as well if you had a job in tra- on a trading floor that was it you were like you were the golden person so I definitely had that as a as a goal and so yeah, I, didn't, I mean, every single one of my friends from school went to university. I can think of a handful that didn't, but it was very much the social norm to go and get a degree. And I think, you know, really, when I joined uh, University College London, so I studied in London, I've, I was brought up just outside London, so I'm, I'm very much, I'm, I live in West London now, so I'm kind of a Londoner through and through. But it was just a done thing. I, I didn't question it at all. And, you know, it was only later on in university that I really started to question it and, and think, should I just drop out? Do I need to do this? Do I enjoy it? I mean, can I see a future in finance for myself? And I did a couple of internships at university and that was really what put me off. I think, you know, it was the lack of control. It was, it was the daily work that I would have been doing. But yeah, initially I was gung-ho, university, get that degree and go and work for someone else. So you did actually enter the studying process after high school. So how did this kind of overlap with what you were doing online? Because, you know, I can imagine if you were doing your original blog and and eBay and all that on the side outside of school hours, it's the same story. You might be thinking, well, I can get a degree and start side projects online when I'm not studying. Is that what happened initially? Yeah, so the timeline was I sold Blogtrepreneur within a couple of months, started university, and it was that first winter at university. So bearing in mind that I didn't really have any other commitments online, it was just me carrying on, messing around, tinkering around. I think there were a couple of other websites that I was building, but I really was kind of trying to examine what do I do next. And I guess I had this split personality. Like I said, no one really knew about my online persona. You know, by day I was going to lectures or probably wasn't going to lectures. And <laughs> and, and by night I was still trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do online. And obviously universities is a very strange structure. You know, you've got this weird, you know, you can make what you want of it. And, you know, I had a really good time and made a lot of like lifelong friends there. But at the same time, I had this itch and the itch was, I know that there's something online and I know that there's potential here. And so in that winter, the first winter, and again, 
I remember vividly reading your interview with Alborz. And I remember going through that 30-page PDF, reading it back to front about three or four times and going, like, what am I missing? What couldn't I do with Blogtrepreneur that allowed Alborz to scale out? Like, is it just that easy? Could I drive a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or go to the Lamborghini factory and, you know, have them give me a car like Alborz did? Because I think he was producing a couple of YouTube videos at the time. And I do remember there was this one where he went to Santa Gata to the Lambo factory and him and his crew drove a couple of Lamborghinis for the day. And as an 18 year old boy, I was like, man, that's cool. <laughs> I want to do that. So I know how to produce a website. I don't know the automotive industry, but I'm into cars. Let's spin up this website. And, you know, I started searching for any domain name with the word car in it because I knew from an SEO point of view that would be important. But that was it. And I came up with two names. The first was Car Oomph. <laughs> that is in like R O O M P H, which was just horrific. That's not good. And <laughs> no, and Car and Car Throttle. And and in if you think about it, Car Throttle in itself doesn't even mean anything because it's the throttle of a car, but a car throttle, like it, it's it's just strange. It was just two words that I put together, and I honestly never intended it to be. <laughs> the brand that now 10 years later I'm still you know it still is my personality but yeah it could have been a lot worse I could have been called the car oomph guy <laughs> yeah, true were you a, a big car fan obviously at, you know at 17 18 you might have had a, a first car uh, probably not a Lamborghini uh, before you started car turtle <laughs> yeah I was a big car fan my, my cousin was actually really into racing and, and he had a bunch of friends that were racers and he would come around to my house when he was at university close by and he would bring his friends who had the latest, greatest machines and actually some really, really rare cars. I remember uh, one of his friends had a McLaren F1, which you just don't see. Another had this like highly modified 996, 911 turbo and they would take me out for spins and drives and, you know, I caught the bug. It's just, you know, when you feel, smell, see, hear these machines, I think it's just something about that that really captures you. So I was, you know, consuming as many magazines as possible. I'd, I'd have a subscription to Top Gear magazine. Then clearly every Sunday evening, Top Gear was, you know, the biggest show in the UK. When between 8 and 9 p.m., we would sit down as a family and we'd watch an episode of Top Gear. And for me, that was like, man, if I could do anything with my life, it would be that. And I guess that served as the driving force. I did have you know, a really crappy Toyota Yaris. It was a one liter Toyota Yaris, which I actually shared with my dad because, you know, as a young driver in the UK, insurance is ridiculous. So as a name driver, it's a couple of hundred pounds a year. If you're not a name driver, you have your own insurance policy. It's a couple of thousand pounds a year, which is like two times the value of the car itself. <laughs> yeah, I started life with a very humble one liter Toyota Yaris that blew in the wind and you had to just floor it everywhere to make any decent progress. Okay, so what was the plan with Car Throttle, the website? I mean, you heard Alborz's story, so you know, and I guess I should mention again, uh, everyone listening, definitely go listen to, I guess, part one and part two of Alborz, the 2008 first million dollar story where they grew the business to a million, and the one I just completed with them when they got acquired for $62 million by Channel 9 and everything that happened in between. Now, Albor's with Car Advice was very much a editorial content-driven blog. 
It was write reviews, cover car news in a blog format. Albors was journalist number one, then his co-founder was like journalist number two and, and so on. Were you thinking, let's just copy that exact model, but do it in the UK because Albors was in Australia? Was that your initial plan? Initially, it was grow the content site out in the UK, yes. And for sure, I think a large part of it was, well, actually, if Albors is doing it in Australia and I can do it in the UK, clearly the market is massive because already in the UK, we had some pretty big competitors. And I mean, I didn't even consider them competitors because they were just so far ahead of us. So you have... Autocar, uh, you have Auto Express, you have Evo Magazine, you have Car Buyer, you have What Car, Parker's Car Magazine. I mean, the list goes on. There are a good 20, I'd say, magazines. Whereas from what it sounded like with Old Boars, there weren't actually that many competitors. And, and he was able to sew up the market very, very quickly because he was in that level of being unique. So I think initially, yeah, I was like, eh, it must be quite easy. Let's just you know, knock a website up, get some content help, get some freelancers to create some content and let's go from there. Clearly, that just was a poor strategy, but it did get the ball rolling on what would then become kind of really the the, the breakthrough strategy, which was social. So all those car magazines, like I know Albers would say, yes, okay, there were competitors in Australia, but none of them were good with the SEO side. It was by far, you know, the secret sauce for him was simple things like use the car name in the title of the blog post, you know, or, and the, with the word review, you know, Toyota Yaris review or Toyota Yaris 2019 review would get you the search traffic for people looking for a review of that car. And the big publications online back then weren't doing that. And they didn't do it for, for so many years very well. It was ridiculous. With your online publications or those publications, A, in the UK, were they online? And B, were they effective online? Were they good at marketing online, SEO, and so on? Like, was, Or do you see them more as they're the print at the magazine shop type competitors? No, and this, this is like really the key point. So in the UK, most of those brands had already locked out the top search engine ranking positions for given keywords. So even back then, if you had searched for BMW 320D, review, you would get number one, you know, auto car, then auto trader, then auto express, then Evo, or then um, car magazine, then Parker's, then Honest John, then blah, 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 blah. Mm. So when I broke into the market, just to clarify, right? We should time stamp yeah, this. Yeah, this was, this was 2000, this was late 2000. So I'd say this was 2008 to 2010. Okay. And they already had their strategies in place. And because of the strength of their sites, and you know, back in and I, I, you know what, you'd have probably have to teach me about whether this is still a relevant yeah. metric, but <laughs> I remember going on PageRank Checker religiously oh, yeah. to see what the page rank was of Blogtrepreneur, because as you know, the higher the page rank, the more authority, the more money you're going to make, essentially, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And their page rank was six, seven, eight, whereas, you know, even to get a five was pretty tough gig back in those days. So they already had the site strength. And they could just produce a piece of content and it would rank. And to be fair, the difference with this market and this, the reason I think why Albors hit upon this, this formula was because when you're searching for a car, you're in market. When you're in market, you're much, you're, you're at the end of that consideration funnel. When you're at the consi- end of the consideration funnel, manufacturers are willing to spend a hell of a lot of money to convince you to either definitely buy their car or a competitor is willing to spend a lot of money entice you away to their car 
And so when you were in that section of the market, the reason why search engine rankings are so important for that business is because car sales and most other sales are intent driven. And when you have intent, it's generally from search and it's not really from any other source. So when I really realized that, I knew that it would be very, very difficult for us to break into the market. And now there have been a couple of people that have broken in. So a friend of mine, James, who runs CarWow, CarWow has a huge UK presence because they've invested so much time and effort into search rankings. And they have a different model whereby you go from a landing page and you can actually buy a, buy a car and dealers haggle to give you the best price. So this is sounding like an awful lot like a plug, but it is a great business for them. And that was a difference. You know, we couldn't compete with those search rankings. And so we had to find another way. Well, that makes me very curious. I, I, I think it's fair to say too, anyone starting a blog at the time you did would have faced more competition compared to the time Alboys did because Alboys was doing this early 2000s. And yeah, you know, right. SEO is fairly new. I mean, I was also a beneficiary of the easiness of SEO back then. But if I started even you know four years later, which is around about the time you did, yeah, competition was there. And, and same for you know Car Auto Editorial in Australia. There was you know people getting better at that content and just more content. Let's face it, more content means hard to rank. Page rank was becoming still important, but far more other variables were starting to become important too. But what's interesting, and I think this might give some sort of insight into your thinking, social and video was becoming a thing in the late 2000s as well. So what was your thinking process like? How does CarTorto compete against the established players in the UK? Bearing in mind, you are like, how old? <laughs> like early 20s at the, at the most or, or what? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was 20. I okay. was 20, 20, what, just about to turn 21. And a couple of years had gone by where I was running car throttle from my university bedroom and it was ticking along and we were getting traffic. But, you know, for those reasons that I mentioned before, we weren't killing it. And I got an invitation from Volvo. Now, so I guess your listeners who may not have heard old Boz's story or, or understand kind of the auto industry, in order to get cars to review the press offices of these manufacturers, they basically either invite you to a press launch, which might be a you know couple of days launch either in the same country or internationally, and you are able to go and drive these cars for you know the whole day to get a full impression, and then you go and write your review. Or if you're big enough, they will send you a car to your home with a full tank of fuel, insurance, the lot, and you can drive this car around for a week or up to you know a year if they give you a long term for a year. So. We had clearly never got a car before. You're saying we? Who's we? Is it just is you, you got a team by then, or actually, you know what? I, I think I just say we because I'm so used to saying <laughs> we now. But yeah, <laughs> it was it, you. it was me and a couple. It was me and a couple of freelancers that I'd never met before. Okay. All internet-based freelancers. So just before you talk about this Volvo thing, how were you guys coming up with content if you can't access cars before then? So we were creating content on car news and we were doing like opinion editorials we were talking about the industry we still had a bit of a like a slant towards the younger audience so you know we would talk about oh did you see that latest episode of top gear what did you guys think let us know in the comments but right padding it out obviously with some editorial or we did actually go to geneva auto show and we went there and we created loads and loads of content took our own photos and you know, that was content for the next month. Whereas for most brands, that's content that lasts for a day because they cover that show extensively. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, they move on to the next thing. So yeah, we were just kind of looking at what was going on in the news and 
commenting on it in our own kind of semi-unique way, but clearly not being able to rank for those keywords in the same way that our competitors could. Okay, so take us forward. Volvo knocks on your door. I mean, you must be stoked. It's Volvo. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so Volvo sent us an email. And I say us again. Sent me an email. (laughs) And um, Volvo said, we have these two new cars that are coming out. The Volvo S60R design and the Volvo V60R design. Now, Volvo is cool, I guess, now. And it has is been, it, it always, has, it, it, yeah, genuinely, like it has a really good presence on, online. And actually, for most enthusiasts, they're considered as tanks, like they're well built, they're solid, they're safe. And more often than not, they're actually the leaders when it comes to certain bits of innovation. But anyway, in my mind, I was like, oh man, like an estate, a wagon, and you know, like this old man's car. This sounds yeah. pretty dull, but hey, like someone's giving me a free car for the day. I'm going to go and I'm going to review it. And I don't know anything about reviewing a car because I've only ever driven a handful of cars in my life but let's just give it a crack so I don't come from an auto journalism background I was just saying it how I thought it and before we went down there they said okay well let us know if you're creating any written content any video content any tv content clearly not tv and I was like video content okay interesting sure why not let's give it a crack and I know that I knew that one of my friends from school had created videos before, a guy called Ed. I messaged Ed and I said, hey, Ed, amazing news. You know, I've got invited to a press launch from Volvo and I, I think I want to create a video. And I know you created this video before of your of some, you know, school hockey match. Um, <laughs> how difficult was it? And he was like, I mean, yeah, you can make a video. It might not be any good, but we can make one. And I said, what do I need? And he goes, well, well you need a video camera <laughs> to start with. So I said, right, let's let's go down to... PC world, Curry's PC world. So we went to this shop which sells electronics in the UK and I'm walking around, see this kind of tiny flip out camera, really, you know, basic. It's one of those holiday cameras that you take, right? With a flip out screen and it was 400 pounds, 500 pounds. And we bought it. And I think I had one suction mount, which you can basically stick on the side of a car. And that was it. And we arrived the next day at this Volvo event and I'll never forget it because it was you know myself when I was twenty. Ed was twenty. We were these kind of like scrawny young, you know, post teenagers, and around us were these forty-year-old, fifty-year-old journalists. <laughs> there were these TV crews that had these big-ass cameras, and then there's us with our little tiny flip-out holiday <laughs> camera. So instantly, I was nervous, and I was thinking, I was thinking, God, they're not going to take me seriously. I'm going to look like an idiot. But we went in there, and for the for the day, we shot two videos a review of the S60, a review of the V60. And if you ever want to see probably the worst review ever, you can still find those videos on the Car Throttle YouTube channel if you if you sort by oldest first. And they are horrific. But we put those videos out and within the first month, the S61 got, I think it was 40,000 views and the V61 got 50,000 views, 60,000 views. So we had 100,000 views for these two videos about these two cars and no one else from that launch produced any web video. It was either TV or it was written. And we had a hundred thousand views and I was like, okay, there's something here. I don't know exactly what it is, but I was spending a lot of time on YouTube myself. I was consuming everything. And that would include car advice, you know, auto car drips and drabs of top gear that they would kind of rehash TV episodes and put it online. And that was it. I mean, there wasn't much content. And in my mind, I was like, 
okay, this, I think this is it. I think there's a niche here and I think video is where it was at. And so then over the next couple of months, that's when it started. That's when we started to knock on doors, ask for cars and go out and shoot video content. So I'm assuming simply because of the the time, there was no smartphones with, with cameras like we have today. So, you know, you can't just rock up with an, an iPhone and make a video. There's so many parallels here. It's, it's interesting. I know like Albors with Car Advice, they did not get into video content really like as a, a, as a day one technique. It was more written content. And then things changed when they traveled overseas to go to these, uh, I think it probably was the Bugatti Veyron slash Lamborghini slash everything else they got to review on that big trip that kind of opened them up. Yeah. And that sounds like the Volvo experience, although the Volvo is not a Bugatti. <laughs> it was still... Oh, God, if I had a Bugatti the first day, I would have quit there and then. That's it. I peaked. <laughs> but the Volvo, is it fair to say, it was a door opener, especially because of the result you got on YouTube. You can then say, you know, hey, other car manufacturer, look what we did on YouTube in terms of views. Can we get a, your car to review as well? Is that kind of what happened? That's exactly what I did. That was the playbook, right? So it's like the snowball effect. Once the first person has taken that leap of faith, suddenly for every other manufacturer, it becomes a less of a risk. Now, that's not to say in the first year, every manufacturer gave us a car. In fact, it was the opposite. 99% of manufacturers said, no, your numbers aren't big enough. You don't know what you're doing. You're too young. Or however they wanted to sugarcoat it, the answer was no. But Mitsubishi were the next brand that said, okay, we're going to actually send you a car for the week. And it was a Mitsubishi cult rally art, which is this like, <laughs> this pretty ugly looking hot, hot hatch, 1.5 liter turbocharged engine. But I couldn't believe it. The guy dropped it off to my house. <laughs> and I was like, like, are you going to stay with it? Are you, are you, you know, do you need to watch me drive the car for a bit to see if I'm an awful driver? And he was like, no, good luck. Have fun. I'll see you next week. And I got in this car and clearly against my one liter Toyota Yaris, this thing was like a supercar. It was <laughs> quick. So I was, you know, I had the best time of my life. You know, I was sending messages to my friends going, oh my God, can you believe this? They're giving me a car. We produced another video and that was a 10 minute video, I believe. Again, a full review, scripted out. I did my research and that video again got 50,000 views in the first month. That was really kind of the, the start of the snowball because Mitsubishi then turned into Honda. Honda gave us a CRZ. That turned into Skoda. Skoda gave, gave us a Fabia VRS and some other cars. And then we started to break down to the bigger brands. But it still took us a good three or four years be before the big boys touched us. And by the big boys, I mean BMW, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Lamborghini, Aston Martin. That came later. We had to play in the mass market car arena first to prove that we were capable. I'd love to talk about the day you got to step into the Lamborghini or, or whatever your first uh, supercar was. But before we do that, tell me a bit more about the strategy around YouTube and just in general. Is it a case of, oh, we put the, uh, you know, the Volvo review up and then and the second Volvo review and they just got a lot of views organically? Or did you have any kind of tactics going in play at that point? And did you have a presence on YouTube before that? Yeah, that's a good question, actually, because I asked myself this pretty recently. How did we do it? How did we get 50,000 views that quickly? And the answer is the same answer that Al Boz came up with, with his written search engine optimization tactic. I optimized for YouTube search. 
And what's clear today is that YouTube search is now the world's second largest search engine just prior to Google.com or the Google bar or the Apple iPhone Google search bar as well. But not very many people knew that. So I wrote Volvo S60 R-Design T3 Review. That was the title. The description was, I drive the Volvo V60 R-Design T3 engine with a blah, blah, blah variant, with this stitch, with this trim, blah, 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 blah. Here are my thoughts. Upload. And because of that, when people started to search for those cars, because they were new, I would come up number one. And that was how I got that initial search traffic. It didn't actually translate into subscribers, though. So for the first year, we were getting views, but you know, we had below 1,000 subscribers. Whether it was because people thought you know, they came across the content and they thought, ah, oh, this channel's pretty bad, <laughs> is one thing. Or maybe there wasn't the same level of affinity towards those big subscribership channels. You know, YouTube still was then just like a passive way of consuming content rather than following a creator. So yeah, it was search engine focused with no other distribution. You know, clearly com. if I embedded the YouTube video, we weren't getting much traffic on each page. That might drive a couple of hundred views. I would put it on my Facebook page and, and my friends would very generously give it a thumbs up and view and create some comments. But that was it. I mean, the rest of it was really from the YouTube search algorithm. So when was this? This was like YouTube was a couple of years old. Facebook was maybe one or two years old. Where were we in the timeline? So Facebook was early. And I, I remember it was before Facebook even released pages. So right back then when I started, um, the wall had just come out. So you could post a status update onto your, this God, this really ages us, doesn't it? Talking about the Facebook wall. <laughs> but yeah, the Facebook wall had just come out. Instagram didn't exist. YouTube was still showing videos with the four by three player, not the widescreen player, even though we were shooting a lot of our content for widescreen for like 1920 by 1080. And yeah, it was nascent. I mean, the, the, the kind of concept of virality was still based on someone putting that video somewhere else, which had a lot of traffic. So for example, you know, you could have your YouTube video would have made it into an email list that then went viral yeah. or your YouTube video ended up on dig.com and it went viral. There was no kind of ingrained YouTube virality because not many people were going onto youtube.com back then. And clearly with Facebook, Facebook pages hadn't even come out back then. So you were either a person on Facebook or you were nothing. Mm. You really highlight the fact, especially when we put this into timeline, with Albor's doing what he did on Google search and then you doing what you did on YouTube search, how you can jump on a platform before it's saturated and before mm. you know the algorithm's too complicated and just do something simple like put the name of the car and all the details into the description and the title and you rank well. So it's almost like today, I, I actually was reading a friend's Facebook post and how he's getting some tr early traction on TikTok, which is like the app of the moment oh, for, nice. for people, you know, like for, for teenagers in particular sharing these short videos. And it's the same story there. It's a newer platform. The algorithm's not as complicated, so you can easily you know, get some views there. But I'd love to go back to your life at this point, Adnan. Did, like, okay, so you've got this nascent automotive social media platform-driven blog website you know, business. You've got a buddy doing some filming with you, a couple of freelance writers. How are you surviving? And are you still studying? What, what does your life look like at that time? <laughs> So I was studying, but I think I was getting increasingly frustrated with my degree. I was studying economics. I was really, I think I did quite badly in my second year. 
I think I got a two two two, and up until that point, I'd considered myself to be fairly strong academically. I mean, I was, you know, A's at A level, which is kind of your university entrance exams. So I was starting to slip. I wasn't enjoying what I was doing uh, from a, a work perspective. I think at that point I had a conversation with my parents to say, I really want to drop out. And, you know, that's probably when alarm, alarm bells started ringing for them. And they, they, I had a conversation with them and they said, right, you've probably got another year left. In the grand scheme of life, what is one year to have a backup piece of paper that protects your downside? And, it, and they were right. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, having a piece of paper degree, if things went tits up with car throttle and it never worked out, is clearly the smartest choice to have after you spent all that time in education. But with regards to kind of like my personal life, none of my friends actually knew about car throttle until the day that first YouTube review went live. And I remember it was quite a big thing for me to tell my flatmates at the time in second year. I think I went to one of them and I said, I've got something to tell you. And he must have thought that I was going to confess to a murder. Yeah, yeah, like he was like, oh my God, like, what's this guy done? Uh, and I said, yeah, I've, I've got a website online. And he was like, he was like, so what? <laughs> I said, oh, I thought you'd be, I thought you'd be really shocked. Or I thought you'd be like taken aback. And he was like, yeah, cool. I mean, cool, cool story, bro. <laughs> and, um, and after that, it was, it was a case of, okay, well, actually, I should probably start telling more people because the more people know about this, the more traffic I can get and you know, so and so forth and, and so forth. So, But you weren't making any money from Car Throttle then, right? I was making a bit of money. Okay. We were selling display ads. So we were selling, again, as you all know, you know the 125 by 125 banner ad um, was quite a consistent way of making money. I mean, we would charge something like £200 a month and we would have five or six advertisers for display ads we would have a couple of sponsored posts we'd have a couple of text link ads i was probably making around two thousand pounds a month from okay. car source at that time remember your traffic i was doing around fifty thousand uniques a month and i think i was just about to hit kind of 70 80 000 when i was just about to graduate okay so it was not like failing that's for sure yeah it was slow growth but it was slow consistent growth but you're looking at like you know a couple of percent a month and you know clearly when you compare that to the world of vc that's essentially like you're dying <laughs> <laughs> well yeah D different uh, model but yeah so and you did complete your degree and then you at upon graduation you said i'm going full throttle on <laughs> car throttle yeah that... <laughs> the pun full throttle that was it i was very <laughs> rational i'd like to think about it so i said to myself right let me give one year and I was 21, I had just graduated, and I was luckily, like, fortunate enough to be able to move back in with my parents. So my personal costs were low. And I said, okay, if I can't show that I can generate a proper full-time income consistently with growth by the end of 12 months, then I'm going to pack it in. And, you know, I gave it a shot. I tried to be this, you know, entrepreneur, internet entrepreneur, but clearly I don't have the chops and it's not going to work. But 2,000 pounds a month is not enough to live off even back then? That was enough, but you know that was gross. I had costs coming out of that. So I was paying freelancers to create content. I was paying Ed to produce the videos. So you know, net-wise, I was probably taking home less than 800 pounds a month mm -hmm. net, maybe 1,000 pounds a month net. So clearly that wouldn't have been enough to 
do what I wanted to do and, you know, go on holidays and, you know, live the life that I wanted to live. Well, take us forward. What happened then? Year one, 100% focused on, on car throttle. Yeah, well, I'll take you through it month by month because it was a pretty rocky journey. So <laughs> okay. uh, month one, things were going good. I was at home. I think I said it before, but my commute was from my bed to my desk, so it was about two meters. I've had that commute. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great commute. Yeah. Um, and we were growing traffic. We probably had a couple of big hitting stories, and we had a couple more cars that were coming in. So, you know, as I mentioned, manufacturers were starting to give us cars, and then Lexus gave us a car, and then Toyota gave us cars. And I was getting invited on a few more press trips here and there. And so I was feeling good. Month two rolls on, and still feeling good but you know the traffic is not really growing by month five and this was christmas time so december january i had kind of had a three-month consistent stagnation the traffic hadn't grown my revenue hadn't grown if anything it probably slightly tapered off so instead of two thousand a month i was now making fifteen hundred a month and that's when the worries started to hit and i remember actually writing it down in my journal I wrote this one page and I said, what is the worst that can happen? And in your mind, when you're a 21 year old, you're still thinking about, oh, well, I wonder what my friends are going to say about this. And oh, what are my family going to say? Because I didn't get a job. And oh, will I be able to get a job? And blah, 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 blah. And I just wrote down what's the worst that will happen. Well, the worst that would have happened was I would have stopped the business and I would have got a job. It may not have been the flashy job that I wanted, but thankfully I had the degree and I would have got a job. I wouldn't have died. No one's got killed. I'm not going to go hungry, thankfully. And then you just realize that actually you've got six more months to really just live it. See what you can do. Reach for the stars and give it everything you've got. And the worst case scenario is you gave it a shot and that's it. And, you know, I'm sure people would respect the fact that I at least tried it. So... Around about that time, I had been also following a lot of kind of tech VC blogs. And I think it was also kind of a passion of mine that I'd read TechCrunch every day. I would subscribe to um, various other VC blogs, entrepreneur blogs. And this concept of raising money started to become a little bit more prominent in my life. I was reading about people that had raised money. There, there was a guy called, um, I don't know if you remember him, but Josh Buckley. Do you remember Josh? No. He was also in the blogging scene with us and he had his own blog and, and we had become friends on MSN and he had gone over to Silicon Valley to raise money for a company called Mino Monsters. And even if it was just slightly before Mino Monsters, I think he had another website called Daily Boost with a friend or he was an investor. But I had seen it happen with him and I'd seen it happen with a few other people and I thought, maybe there's an option here. If I can demonstrate that this is a potentially big business... Maybe I can raise money and give this a proper shot where I can actually hire people, spend some real money and, and, you know, accelerate my growth. And there was one firm in London that I had been following called Passion Capital. And they had made some really cool investments in some really cool tech companies. And I didn't have any contacts. I was this, you know, 21 year old who doesn't know the industry, doesn't know the game, doesn't know anyone. So I did what everyone tells you not to do. And I sent a cold email to one of the partners at the fund. And in that email, I've still got it. It says, hey, here's who I am. I tried to obviously big myself up a lot. I was like, oh, I've, uh, you know, I've grown this website from nothing. I'm a young dude. I sold my previous business. Here's the traction we've got. And here's the vision. We want to be top gear for the Facebook generation. Top gear, but for this digital savvy audience. And um, 
I don't know what it was. Within 15 minutes, he replied and said, let's meet for a coffee. And generally, VCs don't really do that. So I must have just caught him at exactly the right time. And he was just refreshing his inbox. <laughs> and he decided to reach out to this, this silly sounding website called Car Throttle. And um, the next week I went in, had a chat with him, just a coffee. He asked me, right, what are, you, what are your ambitions? And I said, I want to turn this into this big ass website. I want to, I want to be the Top Gear for the Facebook generation. He was like, you know, how big is Top Gear? And I said, well, it's distributed in pretty much every country around the world. I'd done a bit of research and here's how much it's roughly worth to BBC and BBC Worldwide. And he goes, okay, do you believe you can do this? And I was like, yeah, I definitely believe I can do this. He was like, okay, cool. My associate's going to run through some numbers and we'll get back to you. So I went back home and I was like, you know, what are the chances that this would happen? I felt good, but I didn't know if anything would happen. Within a couple of days, they emailed to say, we want you to come in and pitch this to the rest of the partnership. There were three other partners, Stefan, Eileen, and Robert. So I went back in and told the story the week after that, I got a term sheet. The week after that, I signed the term sheet and we had just successfully raised our, I guess what you'd call now a pre-seed round. But it was a tiny amount of money. It was $100,000. But for me as a 21-year-old, that was a hell of a lot of money. It was $100,000 that they've given me to spend how I want, where I want, when I want to grow this baby. And that was kind of the first step on the growth journey. It is interesting that both yourself and Albors also took partners on who, you know, brought in capital as well, uh, different, sort of different way, but not that dissimilar from, from your story. I don't know, maybe it's the car space or something like that, the, the potential vision. Cause I never, I mean, I thought about it after I'd seen Albors do it, getting funding, turning my, you know, my blog into the entrepreneur uh, magazine for the social media mm-hmm. generation, you know, that sort of story. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know what? Yeah. I don't want investors on my back. And I don't, I don't really feel like I need the cash to do anything, you know, besides hire more people and do more content. So what was your thinking around that besides, you know, maybe feeling safer because there's more money in the bank? Were you, did you have a plan to spend that money? And, and, uh, you know, how did you feel about having responsibilities then to other people with other people's money? I was excited about it. I thought, okay, this is, I looked at it as rocket fuel. That's kind of the main reason for raising in the first place. And, and raising isn't the right solution for most businesses. You should only really raise when you have a very precise plan of X will equal Y. Now, clearly I didn't have the formula figured out of X equals Y, but there were a couple of things I wanted to do. The first was really ramp up the video production because I did see that as an opportunity that if I waited any longer, Someone is going to come in and take this market. And B, I wanted to start hiring my first staff. And I had met this guy who worked at Autocar on some of the launches that I had been invited to. A guy called Alex, Alex Kirsten. And he was this, you know, a similar younger guy. Seemed cool. We had a couple of chats. And just prior to me raising the money, he had said that he wanted to join as a kind of contributor, as a, as a freelance editor. And I was really up for the idea. And the closer I got to fundraising, the closer I thought that actually he should join me on this journey because I could see that he was kind of chomping at the bit to to do something interesting. So raising the money really was the catalyst to hiring those key staff to then being able to just jump on the rocket ship and see where it went. And the second part of raising that cash was what happened pretty soon after we closed the round. We had identified because Facebook pages now, and this was 2012, Facebook pages had come out. 
and people were growing these pretty insane pages on Facebook and they were like funny meme pages. And it's the kind of stuff that you'd probably go on Instagram now and you've got your meme accounts and you follow some meme accounts on Instagram and that's hilarious and you DM them to your mates. It was the equivalent of that, but just on Facebook. And there was one meme account called Car Memes. And Alex had joined and uh, we were writing content. We were probably getting now 100,000 uniques a month, but still not crazy, crazy numbers and definitely not enough to entice big advertisers to spend money with us. And Alex stumbled upon this Facebook page called Car Memes. And he contacted the admin and he said, hey, I'm really curious because you've got some links to other websites. Like, would you ever consider linking to Car Throttle? And one of the owners of the page, a guy called Gabor, said, sure, if you pay me this nominal amount of money, I think it was like five pounds or 10 pounds for a link, I'll put a link to your website from my Facebook page. So he puts this link and he hits publish, and within five minutes, our website was offline. <laughs> so I'm sitting there looking at like the real-time Google Analytics stats going, what the, f- what the hell is going on here? Like, I didn't get it. So we said, hey, man, to Gabor, I'm really sorry, but something happened. Can you give us another link tomorrow, maybe, when the site's back up? And he was like, sure. And we were using some shared hosting plan, some like, really <laughs> non-scalable, crappy hosting solution. So the next day, he sends another link. Within five minutes, the site goes offline again. And I look at the numbers this time while it's happening, and I'm seeing concurrent user spikes of like a few thousand users concurrently sitting and hitting the site. And that was more than we'd ever seen before. And I was like, what the hell is this? So we started investigating. We started paying for more links. We beefed up the hosting. And pretty soon, we were doing 250,000 unique users a month. 300,000 unique users a month, half a million unique users a month. And all of this traffic was coming from Facebook. So we decided to basically acquire the page. We thought, actually, you know what? Let's own this distribution source ourselves and use this to then, you know, kickstart our own car throttle Facebook presence because this page was called Car Means. So we put an offer together. We acquired that page. And as part of that, we gave an employment offer to Gabor to join us full time after he had finished university and he was he was a student also <laughs> in his bedroom just creating memes what a job eh? a meme a professional meme creator and we acquired the page and he came on full time after he graduated and we went from the 100,000 facebook fans that car memes had to within a year a million facebook fans wow and that was honestly like i have never seen anything like that before that, you know, when you read stories about 40% month-on-month growth, some of our early like decks back to passion capital, like your investor recap decks, were 35 40% consistently month-on-month-on-month-on-month-on-month. On month on month on month on month. And that's when you see that hockey stick, that inflection point. And then everything else started accelerating because we were using Facebook as a distribution mechanism. So every time we released a YouTube video, we told our Facebook fans to go to YouTube and then the YouTube videos would get a hundred thousand views within the first week. And then we were pushing it to the website and the website got a million unique users a month. And then we started to think about retention and building technology and a platform. And, and that's when it really started. And that's when the YouTube channel took off as well, because we finally stumbled upon the perfect content formula and the distribution mechanism. Okay. So it's a combination of publishing great YouTube videos, which I'm assuming are getting better in quality as you now have financial backing, better tech, 
then you're using this Facebook channel that you've acquired. I'd love to ask you more about that in a second to distribute that video content, which was then bringing people back to the Car Throttle website. You can see like a, a flywheel effect happening there too. It'd be probably growing your YouTube subscriber base and everything's kind of you know compounding. Yeah. Got maybe 15, 20 more minutes here. Uh, then I'd love to know a couple of things. First of all, did this get you a door into driving that Lamborghini you always wanted to as a review car? <laughs> yes, it did. I mean, the first cars, that, like the first proper, proper cars, the first one was a Jaguar XKRS. So this was Jaguar's two-seater. It was almost what the, the F-Type V8 is now, but a little bit more raucous. This thing had something like 550 brake horsepower, was in like bright blue. And we had an interview lined up with this music artist. And this was part of a YouTube strand that we had created. And I said to Jaguar, look, I know that I am way under the insurance age. For them, you have to be 28 in order to drive these high-performance vehicles. And I was, at that point, 22 or 23. And they said, okay, look, we can see that things are starting to grow. We'll give you insurance for the day. But if you crash it or do anything, that's it. Like, that's the end of your career, basically. <laughs> so uh, they, they dropped off this car, and I was smiling all day. Every time I put my foot down and heard that, you know, that roar, of that V8, I was like, ah, oh, this is it. I've reached it. This is Nirvana. I've made it, guys. We've made it. And that was the day that I'll never forget. So that was the first experience. Obviously, from there, you know, we've driven pretty much everything. We've had, you know, race cars at Silverstone Circuit. I've had all manner of cool Aston Martins. We've had Ferrari, Lamborghini, McLaren, Nissan, GTRs, which I'm now very fortunate to own one myself. But yeah, that was the first one. And, and, yeah, that, that was a feeling I'll never forget. So just take me back to the acquisition because it's it feels like it's a 22-year-old acquiring a 21-year-old site like the big boys would do in some ways, right? <laughs> how did that? How did you come up with the price for that? How do you how do you even do that? Yeah, so I mean, the pricing for it was, as you know, with a lot of these things, there are so many different factors at play. A lot of it is what that person's willing to pay and willing to accept. And it's probably not fair for me to talk about the details of it, uh, given that Gabor's, these are my chief operating officer. He's one of my, you know, he's the closest guy I've got. But it wasn't a big transaction. It was another one of these low five-figure deals. And we arrived talking. I said, look, what do you want for this? And he was really interested in long game. He said, I'm going to move to London. This I live in Bristol. My family don't even live here. They live in Belgium. But I see this. So let's take the leap of faith. He became a shareholder, I presume, in Car Throttle as well, right? We had shares for kind of key employees in that early phase. So those option plans were things that, you know, for the key people in that journey, we, we basically helped to incentivize them so that they could be part of the journey with me. And really, they were the rocks of the early, early days. You know, Alex, the head of video, who's now the presenter of the YouTube channel, he, he's the guy where people come up to him and want to take selfies with him. But when we started, he was, you know, no one knew who he was. He was kind of just the auto car news reporter. Um, and then Ethan, who is kind of the first proper videographer, he was also a university student, Gabor, university student. Funnily enough, we did the same thing in 2016 when we acquired WTF1. Um, Tommy was a, a bedroom blogger. He had just developed this insane following of motorsport fans. And I think so we became really good at finding those opportunities where, you know, we thought that people were under leveraging what they had and we were able to kind of 
plug them into our engine to then accelerate growth. And with that, you get all of this network effect from, you know, being able to cross sell with brands that already work with you or being able to leverage your video resource. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, fly by the seat of my pants, man. Like we were learning (laughs) through making mistakes. We were learning through screwing up. We were learning through our investors, giving us some advice, some, some early mentors that I had who were, you know, members of the board, a guy called James Bromley, who was an early investor as well. I was just asking people for advice. You know, I think it's the old adage, which is, you know, don't be afraid to ask. And, you know, you should always feel like you're the least intelligent person in the room that's always got something to, to ask someone and you can always learn something from someone else. And, and I, I still feel like that to this day. I'm, I'm always asking questions and at the risk of sounding like an idiot. I don't really care. I'm assuming all this rapid growth is obviously impacting your bottom line as well. You can now get better advertisers, more more types of advertising, you know, can you take us through like the monetization aspect of Car Throttle as things grew, especially because there's one aspect here that is a little different, I guess, from a lot of the stories I hear. You're very social driven. You know, it's the huge Facebook following. It's the, it's the YouTube subscriber base. So it's not like your email list that is driving sales of a digital product, or it's not like the blog is getting, well, probably is a case of the blog getting some traffic from Google and so on, but that wasn't your main interest by the sounds of things for audience growth your engine was almost external on other people's platforms so in terms of monetization how did that work because you know monetizing on facebook and even youtube they don't give you a huge chunk of the ads that they run on your your channel so can you take us through the whole the journey of of turning all this new audience into an income stream yeah sure i mean so we were kind of transitioning away from selling on site. So buy on site, it's the banners that I spoke about, those text link ads, sponsored posts. And we were starting to see revenue from those programmatic sources, whether it was YouTube pre-roll. And at that time, Facebook didn't have any monetization product, but that became Facebook instant articles where you can essentially link directly to a cached page essentially on Facebook and they sell ads for you. But the big opportunity that we saw, and this was 2014, 15. So again, Part of that raising money, we had the slight luxury of being able to not focus so much on monetization and focus more on audience growth. So we raised in total around $2 million in total over three years. And that did allow us to... Same VCs or... or... So the same VCs would follow on and each round we'd bring in a new lead. Okay. So the second round, we brought in some new angels. The third round, we brought in... Uh, Red Alpine, who are a big Swiss-based fund. We brought in Blake Chandley, who was at the time the, the, the head of global partnerships at Facebook. So he was like a real key guy for us to understanding the ecosystem. Uh, funnily enough, you know, he's now the, the head of international at TikTok. So he, he kind of, he, he really understands what, it, what it's like to take that kind of platform and really start to, to leverage it. Um, but anyway, we started to see brands spending money on video. And Again, because we were such big creators of video, we were just figuring out how it would work. So we did a couple of integrations in 2013, 2014, where brands would come to us and say, I want to feature in a video. And one of the early companies was 3M. We also had Audible. We also had a couple of smaller companies, but Shell were quite an early advertiser with us. And we were just kind of just, it was again, it was the wild west of, of branded content. I mean, branded content is not a new concept. If you look at even radio has had branded content for the last 
X however many years um, it's been around. But branded video content, especially distributed via social, that was new. So we were figuring it out. You know, how do we how do we frame the video? What kind of messaging do we need to put in there? How will the audiences react if we frame it in a certain way? Um, what kind of products should we align ourselves with? And as we started to hire some salespeople in 2015, 2016, the deals started to come in. So where we were selling a video deal initially for a couple of thousand pounds per deal, we then started to get deals for 5,000. Then we got a deal for 10,000. Then we had a sponsored deal for 20,000. Then it was 50,000. And then, you know, fast forwarding much later on when it's, you know, 2016, 2017, when we really started to get into our sales stride, that's when we started to get, you know, the first six-figure deals. And those first six-figure deals were us creating X number of YouTube videos, X number of Facebook videos, X number of, you know, Instagram videos back when or if Instagram even had that capability. And it was just learning through doing again. But every time we would go out to market, we would try and increase the rates and we would try and pitch something slightly different, something slightly new. And obviously today now we have kind of key accounts with these big companies. And that really for us is kind of the bread and butter. We have regular recurring clients that like to spend with us. And I guess to also fast forward, we now see ourselves more of an agency today. So we have all of these solutions available to brands that actually, for most brands, they actually come to us for advice for how to attack social in the first place. Mm. We're able to say, hey, look, we're experts at this. Here's the shop front window. Here's what we do for ourselves on these social platforms. And hey, if you want us to do it for yourselves, we will do that for you. And that increasingly is a big part of our business. It's the white labeled agency services. And I think if you, again, compare us with Elbors and Car Advice, and actually maybe he is doing this and I'm just being ignorant, but we are a content studio, really. We create content where actually you wouldn't even know that it's us creating that content on behalf of other brands who don't know how to produce great YouTube content. Is that outside of automotive as well? We have done some stuff outside automotive, but for the most part, it's automotive and motorsports. So again, we found our niche. We know what we're experts at. The people within the company are experts within automotive and motorsport, and that's where we focus. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I know Car Advice definitely did content production, but I don't think it was as, well, I can't really say either. Um, sounds like you really are acting as an agency, and I doubt Alvarez would ever call Car Advice an agency. But let's wrap this up. And then I'm, I'm really curious because we're talking 2019. You just got acquired. So, in the interview I just completed with Alborz, it was interesting. They were heading towards an IPO, which then spurred a few key players in the media space in Australia to actually finally make a good offer and acquire, which they eventually did with, with Channel 9. What was the story behind you deciding to sell? I, I believe you're still working. I, I can still see on your LinkedIn, you're still the founder and CEO of Car <laughs> Throttle. So you're still involved. Yep. We could talk about your future as well. But what led to the acquisition? Yeah, so... It was actually quite an easy decision. I think we had reached the point where in 2018, 2019, going into 2019, we were growing and you know revenue growth was pretty strong. I mean, we were still 40, 50% year on year, but especially with this kind of media business, you know, you're working with agencies. We were feeling constrained as a team. We have these still big growth plans and we also didn't want to go out and raise another round of, of finance. You know, we had reached profitability. We were successfully managing to grow the size of accounts. But at the same time, I could see the bigger picture. We, any one time, have, you know, 
eight to 10 big video campaigns that we're working on with our team. But realistically, in the UK, we don't work with every single manufacturer. And so when we were looking at the future of the business and where we needed to be to have, you know, 50 clients concurrently, there was a lot of areas that we needed to scale. We needed to scale the sales team. We needed to scale our video editing team. And really, we needed people that understood this market as much, if not slightly better than we did from those two areas. So we went to market. We basically actively had a couple of inbound offers and they were exploratory. Um, and we've always had kind of exploratory inbounds. And I'm sure Bors would have said the same oh, yes. thing. There were always people trying to get information from you and trying to figure out, you know, I think this is interesting. And, and you know, it's my obligation as a CEO, especially we've raised money to explore every single conversation. Uh, but we had some pretty serious offers. And that kind of spawned me to really start talking to a couple of people in the market who I had really respected. And one of them was Dennis Publishing. And I had known the kind of some of the management team at Dennis for a good five or six years. It's a pretty small industry. Uh, you get to know people pretty well. And we had a conversation, a really frank, open, honest conversation about the future of their business. And Dennis was acquired by a private equity company, actually, at the beginning of this year, a company called Exponent. And they are essentially digitalizing their business, where once they were predominantly print with some display, now they are display, but now increasingly looking to really grow their content partnerships out. And a part of that was they really didn't feel like they understood social across pretty much all of their brands. And when we would go into them, we would say, look, we have 40 or 30 to 40 times the reach and engagement that all of your brands together have, Dennis. Um, but at the same time, you are in market and you see and work with every single automotive manufacturer. So if we want to accelerate our business to the next tiers of revenue, we think that there could be a really good combination here. And so it happened pretty quickly. I mean, I met the CEO about a month later, we had an offer ahead of terms. And then two months later, once we had done all of the due diligence, we inked the deal and I was in the offices announcing it to, I think it was something like 500 people across the world that they have offices also in, in New York and Washington, D.C. And we moved in two weeks after that. So, I mean, wow. in the space of four, four months, you know, it all changed. And we kind of are now part of this amazing big family and I am still, for me, really committed to delivering on growing this business and, you know, now having access and opportunities to things that I didn't have access to before. And I think the other part, and I'm sure you're going to ask me this as well, is it's the learning again. I feel like in the last couple of years of Car Throttle, we became so efficient at what we were doing. I wasn't learning as much as I did in the early days. And we had reached a stage where we were kind of eager to be part again of that big, big vision and big culture. And I wanted to learn again. And the same goes for my team. I, you know, I want them to be on a high growth trajectory too. And this just made perfect sense. We would get to find out how to work at scale, but also we could bring in a real understanding of social media into a company like Dennis, which does, you know, over 200 million a year in revenue. So this wasn't an exit. So you get a few million dollars and go buy every supercar you want. So you can actually own them instead of uh, just have them as review cars, which is kind of what Alvarez <laughs> has done in the last few years since he. he I mean, like he's, he's definitely built up a very enviable supercar garage. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows if I'll be able to also follow in his footsteps. But I mean, definitely for the time being, like, you know, the focus is 
how do we integrate within a big company like Dennis? But also just carrying on, like carrying on learning. I don't know actually whether Elbors is still part of Clarify. He literally just quit a week ago. Oh, nice. Okay, well, so he's, he's, I'm sure, living the dream right now, probably sunning himself on an island somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, um, but yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he, it's a 13-year journey that actually has properly ended. But it sounds like in your case, you saw the acquisition as a stepping stone for the next growth phase, and you want to be fully part of it. For sure. And I think if we look at car throttle in the coming years, one of the key indicators is we still have brands coming to us, big brands that have no clue about what they're doing on social media. So as an entrepreneur, I can still see the upsides left in this market. Um, you know, maybe if we were heavily digital display or even print, you know, maybe I'd be slightly more pessimistic about the long term of the business. But clearly, you know, as much as social is now become just such a daily part of our lives, for most brands, they still don't know what they're doing. And especially for some auto brands who are five years behind your entertainment or fmcg or lifestyle brands they really need some help and so yeah we're excited about how do we keep capturing that market and you know let's go back to the original vision top gear for the facebook generation top gear for the facebook generation for us looks different it's not three guys larking around it is a way of getting auto content wherever you are on whatever device you're on we have done that to some extent but likewise how many people, like consumers, or actually your everyday person on the street, have they heard of Car Throttle? Have they heard of WTF1? Have they heard of the rest of the brands within the Dennis portfolio? Maybe they have. But if they haven't, that's still my goal, which mm. is how do we get the message out to every single person? Because, you know, that was something that I set out to achieve. I love this. There's probably some some young guy or girl sitting here listening to this podcast who is going to say, you know what? there's still an opportunity to do cars on TikTok. So I'm going to get on TikTok yeah. and, and, you know, I'm going to be the next Albor slash Adnan and, you know, in 10 years time, we'll be, be on my podcast talking about how those guys inspired them to get started. But there's an important point there, I think, and, and you highlight this. The platform itself lends to opportunities if there is just purely in the time cycle of the way markets mature and new technology rises there's these opportunity windows albor's jumped on the google opportunity you've jumped on i'd say the facebook youtube and instagram opportunity and you know obviously all social in general and there's always something new we're talking about tiktok now as we record this but whatever it is two three four years from now there's all these new platforms that emerge for consuming content so you have an opportunity to jump on that and take any very profitable vertical whether it's cars or you know like you were saying all these lifestyle brands or it could be finance, whatever it is, and and doing content there. But Adnan, I actually have to run. So it's my turn to end the podcast. I never do this, but I, I do have a, a, another another commitment. But I want to just no say thank you for telling the whole story. That's fantastic. Where should people go to see what you're doing with Car Throttle right now? So the easiest thing is type in Car Throttle, whatever you're using, whether it's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and you'll find us. That's the beauty of being cross-platform. You can't miss us. So that's Car Throttle. And then, you know, I love to hear from other young entrepreneurs. You know, a large part of what I do and I'm starting to do is to, you know, give other advice to others that are starting off, you know, because I wanted to have that advice and I managed to get it from mentors as well. So you can reach me on Instagram, adnanr35. And yeah, um, thank you for having the time. And to, it's finally 
amazing to connect with you and uh i'm sure that actually this hour and a half could easily have been a three-hour podcast so maybe we follow <laughs> it up at some point in the near future with with yet more learnings it is interesting because you have been acquired and you're within a much larger company now and and i've never really done the podcast that talks about what happens next because frankly i don't want to say this to you right now but you're not an entrepreneur now you're an employee within someone else's company <laughs> <laughs> you're one of those people you know, i'm one of those guys i'm a corp no it's funny actually so, uh, the, the guys in the office like they often they take the piss and they're like oh you know you're just you're one of our colleagues now and i was like you know what it's funny because Again, just to finish off, your you know original blog was called Entrepreneur's Journey, and we're all on a journey. But the journey for me definitely includes just seeing and learning. And it would be remiss of me to not actually learn how a big company scales and how a big company functions. And you know, I don't know what the, the next couple of years yeah. are going to hold. Actually, so a we'll lot see. of it is just really figuring <laughs> out my own journey. And, and you know, and I'm sure the same is can be said for, for you as well. It's just all part of the fun, eh? Well, yeah, I'd love to speak to you in maybe a year, Adnan, because Albor has lasted one year or maybe two <laughs> under the corporate structure that got taken over with his company. And it, he made it very clear one of the reasons he left was he just couldn't work within the bureaucracy of, of that way of decision making. And, you know, it takes so much more time to do something. And they, you know, they look at data in a different way. It's not so free flowing. So I don't know if it's the same case with you and your, your new partners and new owners. But yeah, I think it'd be fun to talk to you in a year or two. Maybe it'd be great. Or maybe you'll be out and you're, you know, starting something new. Who knows? But thank you for taking the time to share the car throttle story you, up to today. And um, let's keep in touch. Definitely, man. Great to chat. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Yarrow's podcast. For more episodes, visit yarrow.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.